I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in and stops my mind from wandering where it will go. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm filling the cracks that ran through the door and kept my mind from wandering where it will go. If you want it, here it is. Come and get it. And welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing. Remember, this is wide screen podcasting. This is wide screen podcasting. And the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for listening, downloading, switching on and switching off. I hope you're all safe, well and sound. And... Boy, oh boy, are we ever playing it safe today and doing what we love here on this podcast. Yes, folks, it is indeed that time again. After his iconic turns on the show, where we reviewed Press to Play and Flowers in the Dirt, and made an attempt at reviewing Pipes of Peace, I will once again be joined by the OG of talking about Paul McCartney into a microphone, one Mr. Ken Michaels. 
It's always a joy to have Ken here on the show. He always brings the top quality conversation and analysis that I crave. And his knowledge of Macca and the Beatles is just, well, it's just mind-boggling, isn't it? Now, normally Ken is my go-to guy for album reviews, but instead we're going to simply talk about Paul in the most general terms here. You know, this is going to be proper big picture, broad spectrum, macrocosm type conversation here today, which, considering mine and Ken's penchant for going off topic and completely digressing means we're definitely playing to our strengths from the outset and the main kind of topic at hand that we're going to attempt to stick to is we're just going to be discussing our top three praises of Paul McCartney and our top three criticisms of Paul McCartney. Now there isn't anything too complicated with this episode and we do set out at least at the start with our respective lists to go back and forth but as you will hear shortly There was indeed a lot of overlaps with our picks, so much so that it quickly became apparent that the format was needless and we'd be repeating ourselves. So essentially, I just add a lot to what Ken is saying with a few of my own riffs as well. And that for me is totally fine. I will gladly listen to Ken talk about anything. I'm sure you are the same as well, though, you know, I've been doing this podcast for like four years now, and it is strange how... Even in all of that time, I've never really vocalised or even thought about to myself in all that much depth why I like Paul McCartney's. So I was definitely excited to see where this episode would go, you know, whether it would reveal anything about my fandom with Paul that I didn't, you know, consciously know. Anyway, before we get into any of that heavy stuff, we have to settle the matter of the... Housekeeping... News. Uh, what I've got in terms of news, not much really. Uh, I'm preparing for my appearance on the Blotto Beatles podcast, and by preparing, I mean writing an awful lot about one Beatles song and drinking a whole lot to increase my tolerance of alcohol so I don't end up embarrassing myself on that show and stuttering any more than I need to. You know, my stutter is always at the mercy of other editors on other podcasts. I'm also working on doing collaborations with the Ranking the Beatles podcast and the Under the Covers podcast, both of which I've started binging incessantly. Uh, I'm also going to be appearing on Pun It again very soon, where I'm going to be answering puns on Arnold Schwarzenegger films and rappers, in addition to puns on TV channels and alcohol. I'm sure all the Pun It fans are getting very excited at that, you know, all 5% of you listeners out there. In terms of this show, I'm recording episodes on the McCartney 1989-1990 World Tour, part two of which we'll see uh, guest Dylan Seavey returning. There's another hypothetical episode I'm doing with Tom Hanyardi soon on War and Peace, which, considering Tom's last appearance on this show, will be awesome. Uh, Listen with Sam, Band on the Run, is still floating about in the milieu, and I'm sure I'll have to do an episode on all of these supposed apparent McCartney 3 leaks and the two songs that have been played on various radio stations over the last 24 hours. I've been hearing so much on that. I am sure you'll hear my thoughts soon. Anyway, on with the rest of the housekeeping. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I always want to know your personal Paul McCartney stories. I always want to know your insane trivia bits that I may have missed out on the show. And let me know what you think of my comments on McCartney's music. Or even write to me about something that we are going to be discussing in the future. You know, off the ground is always around the corner, don't forget. 
But yeah, even if you just want to say hi, please get in contact with me at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I always love reading out your emails here on the show. We do have just one quick one here from a regular correspondent, David Jackson. He says, Hi Sam, if you wander through to Soho Square, you'll find the MPL headquarters and you will see the Wings Greatest statue on the first floor window, aka Paul's office. So in many ways, this statue outlived all of the members of Wings in Paul's life. Keep up the great show, David. And yeah, that was just in reference to my episode on Wings Greatest with Ethan Alexanian. And on the episode, I briefly discussed just how big the fucking statue on the front cover of that album is. And it's so cool that Paul has kept it around, though I'm sure, you know, the fact that Linda bought it also gives it another layer of sentimental value as well. But yeah, moving on, follow us on our Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod for all sorts of updates and ramblings and bad comedy. Check out our blog, which I am genuinely updating as regularly as I can now, folks. I've got a couple of other articles in the pipeline. But yeah, check out all of our bonus Paul or Nothing content there. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube, simply by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. If you want to help out the show right away, right now, in a way that takes less than 30 seconds of minimal effort then hey, please leave us a five-star review on whatever podcasting platform you are using. Leave us a like if that applies. And hey, if you want to leave a little a little comment or a little review saying how much you've enjoyed this show, I'd really appreciate that too. Always boost us up in those ever-complicated algorithms and rankings. You know the shtick. And finally, if you want to help out the show in a big way, in a direct way, if you want to help keep the lights running here at Paul or Nothing or you know, maybe you've just been enjoying the show so much you'd like to buy me a beer or buy me a coffee, please consider chucking a couple of dollars down the internet every month to help support the show on Patreon. It's a platform where you, the public, can support independent content creators like me. And I'm already supported by a wonderful family of Patreon patrons who are giving back to the show, and I cannot thank them enough. Just just want to give them a quick shout-out. Of course, we have... Teresa Breda, Stephanie Miller, Louis DiLonardo, Stuart Cook, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S., Sam Hode, Anastasia P., Robert Carabelli, Tony Vosal, Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips. Thank you to everyone who supports the, the show. I've been trying to crank out a lot more product for you all lately. We're well past 100 episodes now. I've still got to record a 100th-ish episode special as well. Uh, you know, I'm glad you've all been enjoying the show and... This is my version of a short intro, so let's just dive right in. Let's bring on my guest of honour. One, two, three, let's go. And now, folks, it's time for me to bring on today's guest. You all know and love him by now as much as I do, and I'm so lucky to have him both as a friend and a friend of the show. He is the godfather of Beatles new media broadcasting since 82, I believe, having been the host of the nationally syndicated worldwide broadcast and highly lauded Beatles radio programme, Every Little Thing, as well as the Beatles podcast, Things We Said Today, and solo Beatles videocast, Talk More Talk. On this show, you will know him as the man whose two top Paul McCartney albums are pressed to play in Flowers in the Dirt, and as the man who always tells me I'm thinking about things a little too much. It's great to have him back on the show, folks. I love having him here. Please welcome Ken Michaels. Ken, how's it going, my friend? As long as you keep giving me introductions like those, I'll be on your show as often as you want. You know, <laughs> the God, what was that? The Godfather of what? 
The, the, well, I should, I should have said the Podfather. That's a, a nice little pun, but the Godfather okay. of Beatles New Media. I think that's a good title. It has a certain ring to it, you know. Oh, that's very good. That was very clever of you. I'm sure there. I'm sure there are other people who would like to take to uh, take that one, but you know, Womack Rodriguez, he got there first. I'm sorry. Uh, they're all doing very well, though. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, I mean, one of those two has unfortunately been allowed to listen to the album that I really want to listen to right now ahead of time. Mm. The lucky, lucky git. Speaking of which, Ken, of course, us recording has been incredibly timely. Uh, I was I was rubbing my hands with glee with all the news that was coming out this week, knowing that I was going to be talking to you. What the hell happened? Less than 24 hours ago, NPL announced that McCartney 3 is going to be delayed by a week. Now, Paul and NPL are claiming it's production delays. A lot of people on Facebook are theorising otherwise. Uh, how do you feel about this announcement, Ken? What's your take on it? Uh, from what I understand, it's really because of the fact that they're there's a problem in manufacturing so many of the colored vinyl. Mm. And so that's delaying it. And from what I understand, even though Paul never had plans of making this album this year, that's only because of the pandemic that it happened. He does want it to come out by the end of the year. So it would end in a year with a zero mm-hmm. like McCartney and McCartney too. So, you know, for people who think that Paul is very calculated and that he was planning to put out McCartney 3 this year anyway. That's not the case, but he would like for it to end in, in a year with a zero. So it's only a week later. It's no big deal. I mean, everything else has been pushed back. <laughs> <laughs> Let It Be has been pushed back. The Plastic Auto Band box set was pushed back, although I'm not sure it might be coming out early next year. Mm. So it, it's only one week. <laughs> one week? I, well, yeah. I, I will not stand for this. The Paul McCartney fan base will not stand for it. I mean, like so many people were instantly ready to attack Paul and MPL and accuse them of duking the stats or trying to get Paul a number one for Christmas. Or the one I'm seeing on Facebook a lot now is, you know, he'll have seven different hits in seven different decades and stuff like that. And I'm like, eh, is Paul really that Machiavellian? I don't know. Like there were the stories of him trying to get say, say, say on the BBC and stuff like that to get it to number one. But that's 80s Paul when he's still trying to be like horrendously relevant. Now he's a bit more laid back and stuff. And I don't know. The people who are complaining about this are the people who genuinely think that they have to buy everything. You know, it's it. There's a certain sense of entitlement here from the fan base that represents us rather poorly, I feel. Yeah. Like, do you remember when a couple of weeks ago everyone was just really grateful that Paul had even given us an album in the first place? Like, he doesn't, right. he doesn't owe us any of this. And now he said, oh, I'm going to take a week. Um, like, I mean, I theorized this on my update episode, just like, it's not about making sure the music's done. It's so that everyone can get the same product on the same day at the same time. Because for all of the fracas about all these editions, could you imagine the shit show there would be if everyone got their standard edition before everyone else got their pink, white, blue, green one, you know? Yeah, you're right about everything that you said. Unfortunately, I can't sympathize with a lot of these the fans that buy everything. I've never been one of those people. I've only been about the music and getting all the songs, however they, they come out. What I have complained about, the only thing I've ever complained about where Paul is concerned, is that he puts out all these different editions where you have to buy the album plus to get the other songs. So you're buying the album several times over, which I don't like. 
But, you know, as far as trying to manipulate the charts, I don't really see it that way. You know, if um, all these different variations add up to sales figures, they're not going to be so overwhelming to put him to number one. I know it's, it's like, oh, an extra 3,000 pressings in red. Oh, yeah, that's really going to tip the balance in the States, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, like over here, Kylie's number one. But that's because you can't buy albums anymore. No one's releasing any albums. So when Kylie is at number one in the UK, it's only 50,000 units sold. It's not. Mm. It's nothing crazy. I don't think Paul needs to. I think, you know, less than 0.01% of the population can buy this album and it will go to number one, you know? Right. You know, it's just, um, you know, I don't, I'm so glad I don't, I don't get caught up in all this stuff. But I do know that there are fans out there that, that love all these collectibles. And Paul is very much aware of that. And his marketing team is very much aware of that. So he's making more money this way. And for people who collect it, in part, because maybe it'll be worth something later on and they'll sell it in their retirement days or whatever, <laughs> these are smart investments for some of these people. I could never be one of those people because anything on the Beatles, anything in music, I never get rid of. I keep my mm -hmm. entire collection anyway. But, you know, it seems like it's getting out of hand <laughs> with all the different collectibles that have come out. And don't be surprised if there's more on McCartney 3. Oh, but, we, haven't even got, we haven't even got to the announcement of what these bonus tracks are. Because let's keep this theme running, Ken. Obviously, you, you've just said you're a man who, can, who cares about the music. That's, that's the important thing with these releases. So with that in mind... How do you feel about these colour bundles and the fact that each one contains a unique demo track, putting the minimum number of discs you need to listen to all of McCartney 3 at five discs? What's Ken Michael's hot take on that? <laughs> I think it's all for the collector first. The collector who cares more about that than cares about the music. If I didn't have all the Beatles shows that I do or I have to stay on top of all this stuff and know the music, I'd probably wait until the final version of all of it comes out so I can have all the songs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just it. If I knew altogether that there would be 20 songs that would come from this collection, I would wait till that last version comes out and buy that. But because, you know, I have news <laughs> in my podcast shows yeah. where I have to talk about these things, I have to be aware of it. And that's why I rely upon really, really good friends like you, Sam, who wouldn't mind sharing an MP3 here and there of, of a, you know, a bonus track if I don't feel like paying for mm -hmm. it initially. This is, how I, this is how I get all my music in the beginning. So I can wait until the final version comes out. But yeah, but this is really, I mean, this is for the collector. And there's so many of them out there. And people applaud Paul on, on one hand for every year he's got something for Record Store Day. Mm -hmm. You know, he's supporting record stores that way. And there's always something almost every single year that comes out on him for the collector. And there are fans that eat this stuff up. And I'm not going to tell those fans don't buy it. It's their money. They could do whatever they want to with it. So Paul is pleasing those people. It gives him a little bit of a push in his, his record sales, mm -hmm. but not tremendous. You know, the one thing that I would debate, which I don't know the full, you know, information about, would be, I mean, there, I've heard it said that Egypt Station debuted at number one in the U.S. because it included the sales of his ticket sales. What? 
Yeah, okay. I know that there are some people who accuse that. Well, because you know, um, but didn't, um, didn't a, a lot of free Egypt Station albums go out with ticket sales as well? Yeah, but yeah. Made, <laughs> was that part of the price? <laughs> yeah, they say it's free, but still, <laughs> I, I'm I'm not totally sure if I buy that. Well, uh, you know? I, well, ironically, he released a song on that album called "Nothing for Free" as well. <laughs> <laughs> very good, oh. very good, but. But, you know, uh, I maintain that in the case of Egypt Station, and I will defend that album because Paul went way overboard in promoting it, even more so than he did with the new album. And with all the hype behind all the different events that he created, the concert at Abbey Road Studios, at Grand Central Station Mm. in New York, at Lippa, being on the James Corden show, all of that stuff, you know, created a buzz and... The hardcore McCartney fans went out and bought it in the first week or two weeks. And then there were some casual fans that were curious, and they bought it. So it was number one for a week, and then it died. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it, it, that's what happens yeah. with any album on the charts by a veteran artist where terrestrial radio and mainstream radio is not going to play the music of an older artist because it's not going to cater mm. to a younger demographic. So that's how they feel in programming. And therefore, because of the fact that it doesn't get the radio airplay, the only people that care enough about these releases are the loyal hardcore fans that know about it and are going to go out and rush and buy it in the first couple of weeks. Mm. Except for, you know, those other fans that found out about Paul with Egypt Station from all the massive promotion that he did. Um, Actually, do you reckon this delay is going to spur on the release of a single or do you reckon it's going to push it back? I don't know if there's going to be a single. That's what I've heard. You know, there's an, they're, they're calling it an emphasis track. You know, what is, what is the purpose of putting out a single anyway if there's so little chance that it will go anywhere as a single? <laughs> yeah. I know, but I just kind of want them to do it just to go through the motions. Like, it, it's nice to have, oh, there's a new Paul McCartney single out today. You know, it's a, it, it's a nice little talking point. Um, but it, it goes back to that thing. Um, you've mentioned this with Ringo on your podcast a couple of times. Like Ringo's not going to make albums anymore. He's just going to create EPs and singles and stuff like that. And That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Yeah. And yeah. I guess that kind of shows the kind of strengths of both Ringo as an artist and Paul as an artist. Like everyone, uh, is about, everyone just wants Ringo to do singles because no one really listens to the album tracks all that much in comparison, shall I, shall I say. Whereas Paul... It's the album that everyone seems to be worried about at the moment. And everyone's also like a single is there to build hype. Everyone knows about this album already. I'm not sure how many more people would learn about McCartney 3 because of a single. But hey, um, Um, I don't agree with everything you just said, (laughs) which is, you know, I think I say that more than anything else when I'm on a show with you. I don't agree with you. But, um, (laughs) you know, in the case of Ringo. Oh, you've spoken to Mark Hudson, you're biased. (laughs) No, but in the case of Ringo, I think what he's saying is that no one's going. Most people are not going to buy his albums anyway. But um, he's just doing this because he loves to record. So why put so much effort into a full album, give you ten songs or more, and then see it go nowhere? Why not just you know do a few songs at a time, put it out there digitally, and you know there's no big cost on his part. 
you know? Yeah. So uh, that's probably why he's doing that. Why don't we get Ringo? Why, I was gonna say, why don't we get Ringo one where he plays all the instruments? Come on, let's have that. <laughs> I'll play the drums. That would sell as an album. <laughs> People would be very curious about that. Uh, I've rewritten "Don't Pass Me By" as an EDM track. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we've also had um, a couple of other weird kind of esoteric promotions. We've also had the uh, McCartney uh, Spotify playlist. One has just come out today. We've had uh, previously the Home uh, Spotify EP, quote unquote EP. Uh, and now today we've had the Holidays one, which has Wonderful Christmas Time coming up from Glasgow, Pipes of Peace, the Christmas song, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, Hosanna, and Lady Madonna from Wings Over America. Kent, this is a bit of a two-part question. Why is this called an EP? And what do you think about Paul releasing new multimedia playlists in this way? Wow. First of all, I didn't even know about the holiday one, so thank you for telling me about that. But I think just to, um, in the case of the first one, the home Mm -hmm. set, maybe to drive home the whole idea that Paul recorded McCartney 3 in in a home environment to, you know, I guess that's the reason behind that. But this is kind of cool because it gives attention to these other songs, most of which weren't singles. I mean, coming up certainly was. But I love the fact that the Christmas song is on. I know, there, yeah. Because there's a there's a lot of people that don't even know that Paul recorded another Christmas song besides "Wonderful Christmas Time" and "Rudolph the Red Nosed Reggae." <laughs> but it's good because it keeps his name out there in addition to everything else with the new album. And but the thing is, you know, he puts us on Spotify. Most of the people who are going to see that are fans of his anyway, who probably have most of these songs. But if it calls attention to these songs, to somehow a mainstream public, they might say, hey, let's check this out. These are all connected with the holidays. And um, I think it's a good idea. Something I noticed when I was doing my Wings Greatest episode with Ethan Alexanian from Ferns on the Run uh, was that any new compilation allows you to listen to new songs in a completely different way because, I mean, I'm talking about this in the context of listening to it in the actual order. I'm not clicking shuffle on these things, folks. And listening to Pipes of Peace straight after coming up live in Glasgow, that totally recontextualizes the song and you totally think about it in a new way. And it's also really fun to work out what, you know, new EPs will be coming out. You know, what's his next theme going to be? I guessed last time that it was going to be family, nature or love. I didn't guess holiday, but... Nature or animals, I bet you a thousand dollars, Ken. That's going to be one of them. Because <laughs> if it's not, I'm going I'm to look like a right fool. I hate to say this, but you know, a lot of what he's doing reminds me of my work because my show, every little thing, yeah. has all these themes yeah. that I do. And you know, if you listen to that show that way, and then you try to think what songs work in that mm-hmm. in that particular theme, it makes your brain work. You hear it in a different way, and. All the work that I've done on Every Little Thing through almost 40 years on the radio is mixing all the Beatles and solo music together. It's not doing everything chronologically. It's not listening to an album all the way as a whole. And when you hear it that way, you think of the music differently. Yeah, I mean, we should definitely go back through through your catalogue and make sure he's not just copying you verbatim, you know? <laughs> you know, I, that's a good idea. <laughs> I imagine Paul is allowed to play more than three Beatles songs per hour on the on, on the radio. I think he's got a bit more right to, you know. Oh, very good, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some, of, some of our listeners might not know what you're referring to, but uh, yeah, but that's true. Paul can do whatever he wants. Oh, yeah. And and even if he does break the law, um, you know, he's got, he's got enough money to pay those copyright lawsuits, you know. 
He might. (laughs) (laughs) A second piece of minor news we had today, Ken, comes from a Spanish publication called Euro Weekly News. And it has the title, Sir Paul McCartney rants about a, quote, two-faced gold digger. And it highlights a section from the Uncut Magazine interview that I didn't actually pick up on on my last episode. And just quickly, it reads, Sir Paul McCartney rants about a two-faced gold digger in his new song, causing speculation that the track is about his ex-wife, Heather Mills. The Beatles star's new track, Lavatory Lil, sees him accuse a mystery woman of trying to manipulate him for a Bentley. He sings, You think she's being friendly, but she's looking for a Bentley. She says it's hunky-dory when she's telling you a story. Paul, 70, <laughs> Paul 78, Heather 52, married in 2002, but separated four years later, with fans later accusing her of, of being after his money. She saw $125 million, but got 24.3 in 2008, which she said she was very, very, very pleased with. Quote, in a recent interview with Uncut Magazine to promote the new album due out next month, Paul said, To tell you the truth, she was someone we rubbed up against. You get a few of them in life, these people who screw you over. I thought, I'll have you, I'll write a song. You'll never know who it's about because I won't tell anyone, but I'll know. And people know who I'm talking about will know. <laughs> Ken, I, can, huh. I cannot believe I did not overanalyze those lyrics already and bring this theory to you. Um, would this be the first post-divorce song we've had about Heather, if true? <laughs> I think it would be. You know, until that last sentence from Paul that some people will figure out who it is. I mean, this could easily be about somebody that we don't even know about. It could be some some character that, that Paul creates in his songs, like Mr. Bellamy or something. You know, he could he can create all these people that either don't exist or do, and we'll never know unless he tells you about it. But the mere fact that he said in that interview, this is someone that you, you can figure out who it is, <laughs> you know, that immediately makes your brain think that it's Heather. Well, it ain't, it ain't about Linda, is it, you know? No way. <laughs> Lavatory Lynn would have been a nice title, though. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting that he put that in the interview, because, you know, Paul likes to disguise things and not make things obvious. And that makes fans overanalyze the mm-hmm. songs and think, oh, this has got to be about the other Beatles, when you don't really know for sure or not, without any confirmation about it, or a song about John or whoever. And unless Paul comes right out and tells you it is, you can't really say for sure. And Paul likes to do that. And, um, but like, no, I, oh. I, I always, it bothers me, as you know, yeah. when fans read into these things so much that they think that the only people that the Beatles know in their lives are each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if there's anything really sensitive that, that one person saying about another person, it's got to be about John for Paul or Paul for John or, you know, it it goes overboard sometimes. And there's only so much you can say without sufficient proof. It's just your opinion. Oh, this, though, it does feel like a direct middle finger. Like he like he he knows how to base us. He knows that the people who read too much into three legs and too many people that, you know, these people still exist and they are looking for these clues. And, you know, it's a great headline. It. It'll certainly be in the Daily Star tomorrow, I, I, I imagine. Um, was the song Heather about Heather, or did that come first? What do you mean, come first? There was a song... I mean, that's, that's a, that was a love song for Heather at the that, time. That, that was a love song for Heather. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll just double-check. And I, have, I haven't got to that in my uh, chronology just yet. Mm. Though I have snuck ahead, and I do think My Valentine is a better example of like 
a love song written for the second love of your life, you know? Which is something quite unique for Paul, like writing new iconic love songs for his new partners, you know? That in itself is quite daring, you know? I, I know a lot of people would probably be like, uh, you know, you've written Maybe I'm Amazed for Linda, now Heather and uh, the new missus get nothing, you know? <laughs> uh, he's got every right to, to compose as many songs as he want, wants to for Nancy, you know? Why should he? Yeah, go on. Why not, eh? Who cares what the idiots say? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, now that we've rambled on long enough and stretched our legs out a bit, let's move on to the main order of business here today. Now, I likely would have gone through this, Ken, at the start for everyone, but just for the benefit of everyone sat here right now, me and Ken are going to do, do something a little bit different. We're just going to cut the middleman out and just aim to have a conversation rather than <laughs> trying to have a conversation in the middle of another conversation. And... The topic of the day, folks, we're just simply going to sit here and discuss our top three likes and dislikes about Paul McCartney himself, the man, the person, the being. Now, Ken, once we'd done Flowers in the Dirt, I knew that you did not want to do another album review. So as the progenitor of today's topic, I want to just ask, where did this idea come from? Are we as podcasters focusing too much on the music and not the man? No, I think sometimes... um there should be a proper balance between positive and negative. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I could be overly positive because when it comes to the music, the group and the solo where the Beatles are concerned, I, I like most of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not super critical like, like a lot of people. I can find something good to say about almost anything. That's just the way that I am. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, um, you know, just to show in a way that all people in this world are not perfect, none of us are, as much as we admire the four Beatles, I'm sure that there are things that we could say about each of the four of them that you'd be critical of. You know, on the one hand, I feel that I've been completely spoiled and overly blessed by everything that all four Beatles have given us. But I'm sure that at the same time, there might be some things you wish had been done or something that you'd be critical of of the four of them. So just to show that there's that side, too, that we can be critical as well as as positive. Mm -hmm. Um, that's why I wanted to do that about Paul. And it's very difficult to do that because the man's been so damn prolific in his entire career. He's given us so much music. Sometimes I say to myself, not only with Paul, but the Beatles, what on earth is there to be critical of or to complain about? So, um, I thought that it would be a good idea to, to highlight a few things, uh, as far as, um, you know, our criticisms and also why we admire the man at the same time. Now I'm, just to clear things up for everyone listening at home, this isn't going to be critiques of the music. This is mostly going to be Paul as a person, as a businessman, as a media figure, as a musician, but not the music specifically, I guess. And all the aspects of his life inevitably bleed over from one to the other. So it is hard to kind of separate five or six different, you know, versions of Paul. He is all the one guy. You know, he is both a shrewd businessman and media figure, as well as being the Greenpeace thumbs aloft wacky guy at the same time. And that is one of the most interesting sides, really, the fact that he is able to kind of spin all these plates. Uh, Ken, mm. Ken, the best way to do this, uh, you'll read out your three dislikes first, then I'll read out my three, then we'll do the same for your likes. Uh, I'd rather you go first, most because you're the guest, and I'd rather my thoughts be ruined by you speaking first than the other way around, because you'll be much more erudite than me. I'm sure many of you listening out there will have correctly assumed that, for me, being a grumpy, moody, disillusioned, cisgendered white male, of course it's easy for me to come up with reasons why I don't like something. 
But um, <laughs> with Paul, I didn't have any instant reactions, you know. If you host a Beatles podcast, or you know, you can hate up to 75% of the band and still kind of move forward each episode. But I couldn't do this show this long if I wasn't a bit of a sycophantic fanboy at heart. Also, folks, this is our own opinions. You know, we love Paul. We, we, we've we done all this media in his name. If you don't want to hear the dislikes, I'll put a little timestamp down below and you can just skip forward and hear two demagogues heaping praise over someone who is already the most rich and successful artist of all time. Um, someone who doesn't need any more praise or self-reassurance. You know, Paul is going to be fine whether we slate him today or not, which... Which, which were not anyway. Um, all rights reserved, copyright, blah, blah, blah. Ken, please tell me, what grinds your gears about Sir James Paul McCartney? <laughs> My criticisms of him. Um, the one thing that, that bothers me the most is his over-reliance on uh, his fame and time with the Beatles mm-hmm. these days. And it's not something new. <laughs> <laughs> I really loved, as much as I, I think more of Paul's music, he's put out great music in all the decades, don't get me wrong, but I, I tend to favor him more when he's not in a band and when he's out on his own. Mm-hmm. I think that he experiments more and collaborates with different people. So that being said, I sure did love the 70s, but I loved the 70s a lot because he wasn't using the Beatle name for anything. Mm-hmm. He tried. He he felt a need to prove himself on his own, as all four Beatles had to do. And even in the earliest Wings tours, the only Beatles song he did was a cover of "Long Tall Sally." And then even during the Wings Over America tour, there were only five Beatles songs in the whole set. Mm-hmm. You know, and in '79 when he toured the UK. And I know that the tour was meant to go longer. He started to add a few more Beatles songs, but he didn't go overboard, in my estimation. 1989 hits, it's a different ball. <laughs> oh, here we, and go. here we go. It's like, here's all the Beatles songs I haven't done live before. And he he's very proud of these songs, as he should be. He had to get this out of his system. You know, and I would say that, you know, 60% of his concerts then were Beatles songs. And now you go and see him, and it's, I think, more than that. It's more like two-thirds. It seems like 60% to two-thirds. Pushing 80, yeah. Pushing 80% sometimes. Like, ugh, unless he's got a new album to plug. Like, if it's one of these inter-album periods where, like, you know, he's down in Brazil or something, it may as well just be a Beatles concert where three of the Beatles don't turn up. <laughs> well, I understand also that with John getting murdered... And even when George was alive, he wasn't touring outside the 74 tour and that brief tour of Japan. He's all you got. I mean, Ringo will do some Beatles songs, but there's only so many that he can do. Mm. And he does a handful of his songs, Beatles and solo in the all-star band, uh, all-star band tours. So I understand that he's Paul is the keeper of the flame. Mm. And he's been very comfortable in that role. And I liked him better when he was proud of his solo music and played a few Beatles songs. Uh, to this day, I wish that it would be more like one-third Beatles, two-third post-Beatles. You know, but nowadays, it's mainly, like I said, 60% to two-thirds Beatles, a smattering of Wings songs, songs from the new album, and very little in between. 
And um, that's not really a good cross-section of his career. And, you know, it's funny that I'm bringing this up now because there's a, a new article that just appeared in Rolling Stone magazine that you probably know about. It's a conversation that Paul's having with Taylor Swift. Oh. Did you read it? Yeah, I did. And she's so dreamy in all those photos. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Taylor is talking about how much she admires Paul. Yeah. And one of the reasons, mm. one of the things she loves about him is that when you go and see him live, he's not overindulgent trying to play all the songs from his solo career that are deep cuts that he loves. He's basically playing what he thinks the public wants to hear from him. And Paul says that he remembers what it was like when he was a lot younger and he went to see people on stage and it cost a lot of money. And if you didn't hear the songs that you came to see the performer, uh, what you want to see him for, you would be disappointed. So he remembers that. But then, you know, I see both sides of this. I understand that point of view. And to see Paul in concert can cost you a pretty penny. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, what about all these other fans that are buying every album he's ever done, who are buying all these colored vinyl and colored CDs? (laughs) What about all those people that kept his career alive all Mm -hmm. these years? Don't those fans matter? And, you know, I understand, you know, in this article, he says that then I throw in a bone you know, or an odd number here, like I'm thinking temporary secretary, something like that, which will please him at the moment. But still, I wish there was more of that. Mm. I wish he would show more pride in his solo career, everything he's done from McCartney on. And um, instead of just those few wing songs, the new songs, and like I said, very little in the middle. It seems like he's afraid of having the Bob Dylan reputation. You know, like Bob does does not like playing Times Are A-Changing, especially playing it accurately to the album. But it's like, Paul, if you just chucked in Cufflink randomly, it's not like half the stadium's going to go, well, we're never buying another ticket to Paul again. Like, mm. you, you, you're going to make so many dweeby nerds in the audience just so happy. But no, we, we've got to please the moms and the dads who are who are here as the casual fans. There's nothing worse in a fandom than a casual fan, is there? Those dirty, <laughs> those dirty casuals. What's your favourite album? Band on the Run. Get the fuck out of here. You, <laughs> you don't deserve to... What's Ram? Oh, you don't deserve to be at this concert, do you? Mm. Uh, I mean, when, when I saw Paul in 2018, all the deep cuts were in the PA system before the show started. Like he was playing uh-huh. a bunch of Twin Freaks and Fireman and McCartney too, and right. I, I was good to go. You know, before the show started, I'm like, okay, I've heard all of my deep cuts. I'm off. You know, mm. I don't think that. <laughs> I don't think that if he performed anything less than fifty percent Beatles, that it would affect ticket sales whatsoever. Like, even if you heard just "Hey Jude, Let It Be." And yesterday, that's still value for money in terms of seeing the big Beatle numbers, you know? Well, if you're plunking down $100 or more to see him, I think a lot of people would be disappointed if that's all they got from the Beatles or those three songs. But um, I still think that he's he's got such an amazing catalog to be proud of, and he doesn't showcase it enough. He should probably announce ahead of time, if he does a, a tour where... Um, it's less Beatles, say it's one-third Beatles, he should say that so people know that. And if they're not interested, then don't buy the ticket, you know? But then there are people who are going to see him no matter what 
because he is a legend. He's up there in years. You don't know how much longer he's going to do this. So I think he'd sell out anyway. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I just he also notices when people get out of their chairs and go for a bathroom break. And it usually <laughs> tends to be when it's a solo song that they don't know. You know, you mentioned my Valentine. I saw a lot of people get up out of their chairs when that when that song. That's when I uh, went to the toilet as well. <laughs> You know, ah, that's so funny. And he sees that. He sees oh. that, and I'm sure that affects him. I'm so sorry, Maka. Uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just—they serve double pints, Ken. It's not my fault. <laughs> but um, can I just expand on this idea for Maybe. for a couple of minutes? Because it goes beyond the tours. It goes beyond the concerts. When Paul gives an interview, he voluntarily brings up the Beatles. Even if you don't bring it up, he will bring up the Beatles. He did it. Though, he did it with Taylor Swift. He did it with her as well. <laughs> he, 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 you know, like randomly just throw in the old "Let It Be" story, or in an uncut, they're like, "Oh, did you listen to the other solo stuff in the eighties and seventies? And he doesn't say either, "Yes, I did listen to Double Fantasy," or "No, I didn't listen to Double Fantasy." A, because he doesn't want to be too political, or B, he might not remember. So he just yeah. says, "Oh, so Paul, did you listen to the other solo Beatles records?" Uh, you know, John listened to uh, Coming Up in 1980, and that's what inspired him to uh, get back into... <laughs> but, like, that's not the question they asked, Paul. Like, uh-huh. Did you or did you not listen to Goodnight Vienna? Yes or no? Let. Mm. But I don't think he wants to say, uh, you know, I didn't actually do all of that stuff that you kind of want me to do as a gooey fan. And he, he's, like, he's hampered by his reputation. He's hampered by his back catalogue. He's hampered by his own legend. And it's it's a shame he's got to live up to so many ideals. It's like trying to make a new Star Wars movie. You're never going to please the whole fan base at once. It's impossible. His fan base is too mm. big. Yeah. But even, um, you know, when, when he's promoting a new album, you know, he's always bringing up the Beatles. And to the degree where, you know, this new Flaming Pie box set came out this year. As soon as you open up the book that comes with it, it's, it's off the backs of the Beatles anthology. <laughs> you know, it's like, why don't you give yourself the credit for writing these songs? They're your songs. Yeah. They're your creation. They all came out of your brain. You're the one that should be given the credit for it. But instead, it's like, you know, he wants to rely on it was, you know, the anthology was an inspiration. You know, everything has to go back to the Beatles. And, you know, it's it's he's been doing this for a while. I even remember when Press to Play came out. And he gave an interview about, and now this is a story that he's repeating quite a lot, how much he remembered, how much fun it was in the Beatles when he and John would write a song, bring it to the studio. George and Ringo wouldn't know it. They'd learn it real quickly, and in a few hours, they'd have the song down. Of course, not every Beatles song was that way, but he likes to apply that you know, and say, well, we tried to do it that way with this album. Why do you need to rely on that? Why do you have to bring up the Beatles to sell a new album. You know, I think that that's a sign of insecurity or he thinks that's what public wants him to talk about. It, he does it way too much. And, um, you know, it's real tough for me to be critical like this because, you know, like I said, he should be damn proud of what happened in the Beatles. Absolutely. But all four Beatles survived on their own. You know, they all had solo careers to be proud of. I don't know anyone that wouldn't kill to have the solo career that Paul had alone without the Beatles, you know, (laughs) but, uh, you know, 
in his mind, he's thinking he has to rely on that. The public thinks of him first as a Beatle, and he's learned to live with that. He's very comfortable with it. But on the one hand, he's proud enough to put out everyone, well, up till now, uh, many of his solo albums and Wings albums in archival box sets, even something like Wildlife, which a lot of people have written off as like one of the worst of his solo career. I don't necessarily feel that way. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, he's proud enough to give those albums that kind of treatment. And yet, when you see him perform live, his tours don't reflect that, you know? <laughs> so That's so true. Like, oh, you know, in, in the year that he put out, you know, Wings at the Speed of Sound and Band on the Road, it would have been nice if that year of touring was stocked with those albums and maybe a couple of years ago he was doing wildlife and red rose speedway songs like oh my god grand dudes performing best friend i've got to see this Mm -hmm. and it's a good way to promote the box sets for these archival box sets you know i i don't understand why he doesn't do that even for something like flowers in the dirt despite the fact that in 8990 he was doing those songs because it had just come out then when the box set comes out why not revisit those songs Mm. do my brave face do this one. Do We Got Married. Do one of those songs, or even songs he didn't do from the album. You know, but he doesn't do that. It's, you know, it, it's so much now, it, it's, it's like predetermined what he's going to do live with a few surprises. And I look forward to those surprises more than anything else, you know, when I see him from year to year. Ken, I know what, I know what bit him on the bum with this and kind of skewed him for life. It was because he put Figure of Eight at the start of the 1989 tour, and for a year he saw audiences go, huh? Rather than opening it with something like Drive My Car, just just open it with that, get the crowd going. Then you go in to put it there, you know? And I reckon he was so confident, you know, Richard Ogden's backing him up with this, saying this is the best album ever, and it's, it's selling loads in the UK, and the first couple of singles actually do quite well. And then... Mm. He meets the wider audience, like the quote-unquote real world. Those were the Beatles fans, you know. They're the people who had probably been there, since, you know, who had seen him live in 76 and even earlier. And that's probably coloured his entire view of how these live acts go. Like, there, there, are, there are people like me now who have come into his solo stuff, you know, after the Fireman packed up as a project. Like, that's how recently I've been coming into this stuff. And mm-hmm. I view it... As a whole, I'm not. I'm not one of these people who 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 is sat with his flat cap in the back, going, "Just play, she loves you." I'd love to hear him do. You gave me the answer. So, mm-hmm. so, like, I I would lose my mind. And if you are the type of person that goes to a Paul McCartney gig and then you don't go again because he played slight deep cuts, I'm tempted to say that you're not a real fan. I know that's a no true Scotsman argument, and it's a logical fallacy in an argument. But it's how I feel. You've got to take it all, you know. If you played some fireman stuff live, could you imagine how people might react? Most people probably go, but there'd be three guys in the back top left row who would, their lives would now be complete, you know. But one thing that he should do, if he plays something that's obscure, that the mainstream audience is not going to know, don't follow that with another song like that. (laughs) Yeah. Because when... when when Chaos and Creation in the Backyard came out, he announced that the next two songs or the next three songs are from his new album. You know you're going to get people getting out of their seats. Don't say that. Just go right into the song and then play a song that people know. Then go to another song that they don't know. That's 
You know, that's how they get to hear those songs. And actually, I think it's a very smart move. It was a smart move to start the 8990 tour with Figure of Eight. No one's going to walk out on your first song. <laughs> You're there to see the guy come out on stage. Here he comes. He's opening with a rocker. You might not know it, but it's Paul McCartney. Are you going to go get a, a soda or a beer on the first song? No. <laughs> so uh, I think that was very wise. And then later on, there was one year when he went back and he opened with Venus and Mars Rock Show in the States. It was a short time, and it was a shorter version of Venus and Mars Rock Show. Was it a version of Venus and Mars Rock Show which went into Jet? Um, I believe so. Yeah, that's the classic I, I, 76 formula. Yeah, but the, the version of Venus and Mars Rock Show was more like the single version. It wasn't the full version altogether. Oh, okay. But I'm pretty sure he went into Jet in, in more recent years. But I was really pleased that he did that, because that's like the ultimate greatest opening concert number, Venus and Mars Rock Show. Yeah, I can already tell, Ken, that our our choices are going to overlap. So I'm just going to talk about what I put for this as well. My third choice was also a lack of variety in his live set lists. It does seem like the last major development he made in terms of being a live act was in 1989 when he returned to being a live act. And Hmm. bar maybe like the MTV Unplugged gig, he's painfully been resting on his laurels. Hmm. Like, not only that, though, the set lists themselves rarely look any different. Like, two encores? Check. Live and Let Die with the Big Fireworks? Check. Mm. Let Me Roll It, where Paul gets to be uh, on, on lead guitar to show off a bit? Check. You know, my God, it's this. And then he's going to go into the audience participation, call and response shit, which I, I've <laughs> never met a fan who has said that was fun or that they enjoyed that. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get on with it. Get on with it. <laughs> Come on. And the other one, I guess, just off shooting off this, is the refusal to change pitch as well. There are so many songs that he could add to his set if he just swallowed his pride and sung, like, No more lonely nights. Like, just do it low like that, Paul. You don't have to go, Lonely nights! You don't have to reach those notes anymore. Just give us... Just give us the fun songs, you know. Like, I think a through line we're going to see throughout this episode, Ken, is a lack of self-confidence from the world's most successful songwriter. He's still so fragile. Uh, yeah, to some degree, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, but um, and he did take Fixing a Hole down when he performed that in concert, when he did it just on the piano. It wasn't in the same key that, that the Beatles recording was in. But for the most part, yeah, everything is in the same key. And if you're really struggling with a song, like Maybe I'm Amazed is painful to listen to these days, take it down or don't do it at all. (laughs) There are so many softest, like he could fill a show full of acoustic soft numbers. Like let's go from Put It There to Mother Nature's Son to Yesterday, you know, to Country Dreamer. He could go through all that and never have to drink that weird vinegar honey uh, concoction he has to Mm to uh, stop laryngitis from building up and stuff. Like, no one's saying he sounds like the George Harrison Dark Horse con- uh, tour or anything like that, but oh. you cited Maybe I'm Amazed there, and you are right. That one was a, a bit interesting to sit through, shall we say. But, um, yeah. Ken, your next point. What, what, what else irks you about Macca? I wish he would collaborate with more artists as a songwriter. 
And when he does collaborate with a specific person, i.e. Eric Stewart or Elvis Costello, it's not for a very long time. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul doesn't have to write songs with anybody to come up with great music. He's proven that many, many times over. But that being said, when you work with different people who are all talented in their own way, you grow a bit. <laughs> Just from, you know, the songs that he, that he worked on with Elvis Costello are very different in many ways from the rest of his catalog. Mm-hmm. The songs he worked on with Eric Stewart are that way. I liked his work with Denny Lane that stretched out over 10 years as a songwriter. But he doesn't stay with someone very long. And I don't know if I brought this up before on your show, but I know I brought it up on Things We Said Today. One of the most telling things I ever found in any McCartney interview, which he said, I believe, twice now. And one of them was in a book called Off the Record by Joe Smith, who was an industry veteran that everybody loved. And it was all these collections of interviews, all pretty short, like three, four or five pages. But the one that he did with Paul, um, Paul said something to the effect, let's face it, Denny Lane is not John Lennon. Stevie Wonder is not John Lennon. Eric Stewart is not John Lennon. And when he gave this interview, I think it was before Flowers in the Dirt, before Elvis Costello. So I don't think (laughs) Elvis was mentioned. But my point is, if in the back of his mind, he's comparing everyone that he writes with to John Lennon, that's completely unfair. (laughs) You know, you're dealing with you're dealing with other people who are extremely talented in their own way. You know, Stevie Wonder is one of the greatest talents we've ever had in all of music. Stevie Wonder's no John Lennon. I'd argue Stevie Wonder's better than John Lennon (laughs) in many cases. hmm. So, but, you know, this is how Paul feels. He not only had the relationship of him writing with John Lennon, but he lived with him. He's known him since being teenagers. They went through so many experiences together, even before the Beatles were, were famous. You know, you have all that to compare to other people later on in his life. And, you know, you, you can't go into a room with Elvis Costello and say, you know, is this is this better than something that I've written with John? You accept <laughs> it for what it is. And there are a lot of people who love what what Paul wrote with Elvis Costello. I especially love that. And, and Eric Stewart. I wish he had done more with Eric Stewart and, and Elvis Costello. Mm-hmm. And certainly Stevie Wonder. He never really, with Stevie, he just did Ebony and Ivory, which he wrote all by himself. And What's That You're Doing, which really was a jam. It's not a serious, you mm-hmm. know, collaboration there. But, you know, I wish he would do more with these people and work with other people in the music industry that are very talented and very good songwriters and see what comes of that. He always moans about a lack of collaboration. But then when he gets a collaborator, he, all he can do is remember his ex and it just ruins the vibe for everyone. Like, could you imagine, like, I mean, just to extrapolate it to, like, George, George has to live within the Beatles and constantly try and live up to John and keep Paul interested in his music. But then you've got Elvis Costello, someone who's, like, 10 years Paul's junior. Paul probably does not nearly respect him in the same way he respects John. How can it even be a collaboration at this point? It is literally just Paul McCartney with you know, or featuring. It never seems to have that true, like, except for maybe like Costello, you know, there's that certain, oh, he writes like John, there's that acerbic wit in there. And maybe you can argue things like Footprints, there's definitely echoes of Stuart on there as well. But Mm. rather like my experience when I was a young lad with Let It Be, 
I wouldn't have been able to tell if that was Phil Spector unless I'd been told. And with a lot of Paul's collaborations, especially when the other collaborator doesn't sing on them, unless you were to tell me, I probably wouldn't spot it most most of the time. They all still sound distinctively Paul. Um, and that is a boon for some and negative for others, I suppose. Well, that's one thing about studying the Beatles catalogue as a group, uh, especially the Lennon-McCartney catalogue, is that you know we're led to believe, and for the most part it's true, whichever guy sang lead was more his song. And in the very beginning, there were a lot of 50-50 collaborations and 50-50 from scratch. And then later on, you had <clears throat> songs that were 50-50, where each guy put his own part in, like I've Got a Feeling or A Baby or a Rich Man, or A Day in the Life, you know, those are great examples of those. But so many Lennon-McCartney songs were mainly John with a little help from Paul or mainly Paul with a little help from John. And then there are some songs that were you're not quite sure. You know, so how much collaboration was there in the Lennon-McCartney songs? And, you know, I am convinced that quite a lot of them were written completely by John or completely by Paul. Mm -hmm. But you just read the interviews that John and Paul have given in most cases, they don't conflict with each other. There are a few songs where they do. There's a couple, yeah. And you have, yeah, and you go by that. But, you know, to a lot of people, the collaboration within the Beatles is what made them great. And yet at the same time, you could also say that while they were in the Beatles, they wrote songs completely by themselves, or in the case of John and Paul, many where you had a little help from the other guy. So how much credit do you give to one person for coming up with the song or to the whole group for the for the entire arrangement of it. Oh, I mean, do, do you remember that story from the Living in the Material World documentary where Paul's talking about And I Love Her? He's like, you know, yep. me and John had all the chords, but it's... That was George, that's the song. And it's like, right. how much should it be Lennon-McCartney-Harrison now, you know? I mean, right. going back to your point, could you imagine Paul singing a song with a collaborator that he didn't write at least 50% on? I think um, Day Tripper even though Paul sings mostly lead on that, is credited to John. Like, you would not get that nowadays. Uh, uh, you're, very, you're probably very right about that. Yeah. You know. Yeah, but uh, I still want him to write with different people. There are so many people from the 60s on up. You know, there are certain icons like a Paul Simon or, a, you know, an Elton John, although Elton John is a different case because he's strictly music. I can't see Paul writing lyrics and Elton writing music, that kind of thing. Or a Billy Joel someone like that, or, you know, a Burt Bacharach. You know, Elvis Costello wrote with Burt Bacharach. I would kill <laughs> for Paul to write with Burt Bacharach, even though he's now in his early 90s. But um, he's still active. There's those people. There are newer people in the music industry. Oh, yeah. You know, you know. Damon you Arburn, uh, Oasis. Uh, Ed, either of those two would, would would have been, you know, either of the Gallagher brothers would have been really interesting just, just, just to see if they could have inhabited a kind of John persona for him to work off i would have liked that damon arbor though he is the big one gorillas blur how have they not done something together already mm. and, and obviously there are loads of people that paul could do like duets with and stuff but i guess he'd rather work with their producers you know like amy winehouse or adele ah, I'll, I'll just work with ronson and kurtzman instead you know mm -hmm. i don't know you know still at the same time the catalog of paul solo is so beyond amazing to me it's kind of like, why am I complaining? <laughs> and uh, at the same time, I still wish that he would work with other people. Because I, I do think when, when that happens, you get a little shot in the arm there, a little boost. 
and it could stir more creativity yeah, when it, that happens. I was going to say, even in like a negative fashion, like even if it doesn't uh, result in something, like say maybe the 1988 sessions uh, with Phil Ramone or, or 87, you know, that kind of thing. If it doesn't produce anything, at least he's gotten some songs out of his system. He might be able to know what he wants a little more now. And at the worst, there's going to be a bunch of B-sides and uber-jubu content for the future, you know? Mm. And then we should also point out youth, because a lot of people love electric arguments. And that was a collaboration between the two, you know? So, um, you know, do more with him. <laughs> that, that might be in my be in my first point of my likes. Um, what, is, <laughs> what is the last thing that, that really gets in your craw? The last one for me would be that I wish that he would be more generous with his back catalog. With these archival box sets, there are some that I love. There are some where I think it's been rather chintzy <laughs> what he's given us. When you've got a full CD where you can put a lot of unreleased songs or outtakes and you get seven tracks, you know, that kind of thing. Wings at the Speed of Sound or... You know, the first McCartney album, I, you know, every album is different for what for what bonus material, how much exists. But you can always do alternate tracks. You can always do different mixes. You know, I wish there was more of that. What we're seeing as his back catalog unfolds with his archival box sets is that they're changing to reflect more of what the public is wanting, especially in the case of more demos mm. like with Flaming Pie or Flowers in the Dirt. You know, when you when you get a really a great box set like the Imagine one, I think that can have an effect on what Paul does. At the same time, I sometimes wonder if the reason why we're getting box sets at all, including the Beatles ones, is because it started with Paul in the Beatle camp. You know, mm. you know, I just think that uh, there are certain albums of his like McCartney like Wings at the Speed of Sound, where you just didn't get enough. He could have given us so much more than what he did. Ben on the Run, I'm not too crazy about. I was going to mention that one. I mean, fortunately, with a lot of the Wings stuff, say like the lesser archive ones, I've got a sneaking suspicion, Ken, that in three years there's going to be the Band on the Run Archive Edition 50th Anniversary Bonus Super Deluxe, where... Mm they might just redo that one and kind of bring it more into line with, say, the Flaming Pie stuff. Because you don't want it to be be lesser than the rest of the stuff. And there's also, like, like little discrepancies, like Country Dreamer is both on Red Rose Speedway and it's on Band on the Run. And, you know, it, it's not perfect. Um, you, they could definitely retool them. And I know that that would annoy a lot of people who had already bought the original archive box sets. But, but then... If we go down that rabbit hole, Ken, we'll mm -hmm. just be going back to what we talked about a few a few minutes ago. Um, yeah, me as someone who doesn't know the full list of hot hits and cold cuts and all the demo tracks and stuff like that, I can't fully empathise. But as I'm going through the chronology and I'm doing my you know unreleased songs episodes and stuff like that and finding out just how many tracks never came out officially or only came out as B sides and stuff like that, you do realise that there is a, a, a shit ton mm. of stuff to get through here. And even if he, Paul did a triple album of Hot Hits and Cold Cuts, it, it wouldn't even touch the unreleased stuff. And, that, and you know, why haven't we got the piano right. tape as an MP3 on Spotify yet? Why doesn't that exist? I know it's not very clean. I know it's not mm -hmm. the best side of Paul. 
uh, and I mean, he might always want to present himself in the best possible light. But you know, the piano tape could easily have fit on either Ben on the Run or Venus and Mars. Oh, on Venus and Mars, it would have been perfect, wouldn't it? it yeah. I mean, when when you reach a point where the fans know more, <laughs> seemingly, than what the artist does, because mm-hmm. some of us, you know, we care about all this unreleased stuff, probably more so than Paul does. And, yeah, I mean, with Ben on the Run, we got um, that other concert. It wasn't even a full concert. <laughs> uh, it's just uh, it's, it's a disappointment. You could tell from the very start that the plans were not all laid out from the very beginning of, of which titles would be coming first and how mm. would each, each one would be handled. It's, it's a work in progress. It really is. And I do believe, whether it's a 50th anniversary band on the run, whether they're going by anniversaries or not, which they really haven't done with this solo music, at some point, maybe, when his entire catalog has been gone through, then I'll, we'll have another new batch. <laughs> You know, and then we'll get demos. You know, I, this probably will never happen. I shouldn't say never. But you do know that Ben on the Run, material from that was rehearsed by the full band with Henry and Denny, Denny Sywell, Henry McCullough, before they went to Lagos. There were songs that they rehearsed together, and there are tapes of that. And we don't have them. What? And Denny Sywell, <laughs> Denny Sywell doesn't have it, but Henry McCullough had it. And I don't know if his family knows where it is. But how great that would be to hear what that band did with those songs. Because uh, you know, according to what Denny Sywell has told me, Paul kind of copied the drumming that he was doing for Ben on the mm. Run. So I don't know. <laughs> There's so many things that you can do with, with uh, his back catalog. And um, it's endless. I mean, I can't believe two crooks in Nigeria haven't come out and said, oh, by the way, these are the lost band on the run tapes, by the way. We found them. We didn't just chuck them in a river somewhere or something. That would be brilliant for the uh-huh. uh, for the 50th anniversary. What a, what a find that would be. That would be like finding the Isha demos, you know? On the one hand, I love it when Paul puts puts out something in these box sets that we either didn't know about or even if they're rough quality like um, the song that he wrote with Elvis Costello, I Don't Want to Confess. Yeah, that was great. You know, Loved it. I, you know, I, even if it's not a good song, whatever your opinion is of it, you know, just knowing that there's a song they wrote together that I hadn't heard before, and here it is, not in the best of quality. I love that stuff. Hmm. Whatever there is of that, I want more of it. And the people who are buying these box sets, the archive of the big box sets, they're willing to spend the money for that kind of thing. Yeah, like if you're already so, spending five hundred dollars on Flaming Pie, chuck in the you know uh, the Phil Ramone sessions. I'll pay another sixty dollars on that. If you know, chuck it on the bill, sod it, put not, it all in. And not, not only that, but here, <laughs> this whole thing we were talking about with collectibles and what he's doing now, more recently, especially, what was that with the the Wings Over Europe bonus disc? You know, for Red Rose Speedway, uh, charging people a hundred dollars more for one disc <laughs> i mean come on that could have been just a regular cd to go with that charge a little bit more but he makes it limited edition what was it three thousand copies something like that and i just i don't i don't go for that not only that though not only that you've got like download only songs from his website just to create traffic uh-huh. to a website that no one gives a fuck about unless they're buying something off it like, Paul, I'm sorry, we're going to go on Facebook forums and Reddit 
to talk about your music. We're not going to talk about it in front of you, like the parents keeping an eye on us, you know? Um, you know, oh, you, you better not be swearing on Paul's forums. Oh, piss off. And But not only that, with Wings Over Europe 72, it's not even available on streaming. So you've got this elite class of fans who get to listen to this fantastic concert. They they get to hear the, the coda in wildlife. You know, the whoa. Like, they, they get to hear that. And I don't because I wasn't financially secure enough at the time, which right. feels like I'm being punished by Paul for, like, not saving more in my life. Like, I feel like I'm being ad- admonished financially by one of the richest billionaires ever. And I'm saying this as someone who always gets fed up with, like, we mentioned this earlier, whenever Paul releases another four coloured box sets for McCartney 3, you know, pink, green and stuff, the top comment's always, is he not rich enough? And, like, I'm not one of those people, like, more more power to Paul for that, but I do find a lot of his stuff prohibitively expensive mm-hmm. um, and a lot of it you know i always take the piss out of tom hunyardi if he is a completely free to spend 360 dollars on a traveler's edition set you know 600 dollars 71 72 wings 500 dollars on flaming pie that's totally fine because you're mostly paying for the World Tonight DVD, the postcards, the coffee table book that comes with it, all the little ephemera and tickets and puzzles. Like, mm. if I could afford that, Ken, I'm not going to look you in the microphone now and say that if I couldn't afford it, I wouldn't buy it and love it with all my heart. But I'm not in that position. So being the kind of Marxist, socialist, proletariat um, kind of revolutionary guy that I am, I kind of feel like it's a, a little bit too much. Like, he could reduce a lot of this stuff down like you don't need to put the beatles premium price tag on your solo stuff i totally get that the vinyl of sergeant pepper is going to be what is it like 50 dollars in the states it's 30 pounds over here but that's never coming down i get that i don't think i should be paying 30 dollars for venus and mars that's just how i feel uh, i don't agree with that <laughs> you know it's all equal to me I'm not going to say the Beatles albums are more valuable than the solo albums, because I treasure all the solo music, too. They're all historically very important to me. Yeah, but all, all these other complaints about Paul, to me, are valid. Except that, um, you know, as I've said, there's a George Harrison song called It's What You Value. <laughs> I just use that title all the time, because I don't tell people how to spend their money. If you want to spend $600 for uh, an Egypt station what was it, Traveler's Edition or yeah. whatever it was called? You know, if that if, if it doesn't bother you, fine. You know, that's that's your prerogative. There are people who spend thousands of dollars to go to a Super Bowl game, which lasts two hours. You know, I think that's crazy. But uh, I can't tell people not to do that. If, if it's worth that kind of money to them, go do it. You know, there are a lot of people in this world who eat up this stuff and love it like crazy. And Paul is catering to those people. And, you know, if, if these people get a lot of pleasure out of it, fine. I'm very happy that I don't need that stuff. You know, mm. I, you know I'm just, I just care about the music. That's the biggest reason that I got into the Beatles in the first place. You know, not for all this materialistic stuff. <laughs> but mm. I, I don't knock people who are into it, you know? And it's like, bar you know wings 71 72 wings over europe you can pretty much buy 
a, a cheaper version of everything, you know, you can buy the CD. You, you can just stream it for like a couple of dollars a month off Spotify or Apple Music if you really want to. Mm-hmm. And you're right, like that Super Bowl comment you made, that really does put it into context, you know. Is it even crazier that you pay £300 to see Paul live rather than pay £500 for one of his box sets, you know? Yeah, here's a thought. There are people who spend more money to see Paul McCartney in concert than it costs to buy the entire Beatles catalogue. Now, that is (laughs) insane to me. But I'm not going to tell those people don't do that if it's their money, you know? For something that lasts for a couple of hours, or in the case of Paul, it's three hours. Still... You know, I think that's insane, but it's their money. You know, they could do whatever they want to with it. The cost of concert shows for a lot of artists, especially veterans and legends, can be astronomical these days. You know, pre-pandemic, we're talking. Well, actually, no, it's funny you say that. I found Paul's ticket price quite reasonable when I saw him. Like, Mm. it was about £125 per ticket. So £250 for me and my friend. About four hundred and fifty dollars, something like that. Uh huh. That's very reasonable to see a Beatle in twenty eighteen with mm. twenty thousand other people. Uh, other potential dislikes I've just written in my in my little list here. Just other other, other things I more I thought I might bring up. Uh, what about whenever someone leaves Wings, he never seems to regret it or take. Uh, fault in himself and he'll just cut them out of the history entirely like when i saw the back cover of wings greatest and i was like hang on i've seen that photo so, oh my god he's 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 literally cropped them out of the photo like stalin did with trotsky this is insane right you know i feel like that can be a little bit irksome i know a lot of people really did not like paul for not showing up at the uh, rock and roll uh, induction hall hall of fame Paul's excuse right. obviously was he doesn't want to pretend to make happy families. I think, Ken, that's the only instance I can find of him not putting the Beatle legacy first. Um, Off the top of my head. You know, you're probably right about that. But I always like to maintain that there's a lot of stuff that we don't know about that goes on behind the scenes that we're never going to know. You know, I don't think we're ever going to get the full explanation of Paul and George's relationship. No, because you hear so many different things and you're probably not going to get it out of, you know, the Harrison family or from Paul, who doesn't, you know, want to talk about any difficult times that he might have had with George or something. But, you know, in the end, they loved each other to the degree where, you know, Paul was there with George at the very end of his life. And, um, you know, they did do the anthology together. But there's so many there's so much we will probably never know no matter how many books come out. And, you know, there's a lot of a lot of speculation, which is nothing more than speculation if you can't confirm it, about, you know, what's said about these relationships. A lot of people try to put together pieces of the puzzle and they don't know the full story. You know, yeah. people are complicated. Mm-hmm. All people are complicated. The Beatles' relationships, all four of them are complicated. And that's just reality. No matter how many Beatle books you buy, no matter how many experts you talk to, no one knows everything. And I've resigned myself to that fact. No matter, you know, I'll never know everything there is to know about the Beatles. Nobody will. But you know, whatever went, what was happening at that time at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it is really a shame that Paul wasn't there. I wish we knew all the details. I know a lot of it had to do with, um, you know, 
Sue me, sue contract. you blues, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, to hear both sides of the story or all the sides of the story is very difficult to, to attain. <laughs> In order to be fair, you got to hear what everybody has to say about what was happening, and you probably never will get all that. There were only so four people that knew just, what the Beatles were about anyway, Ken, you know? Yeah. You know, there's. let me just take a few seconds to say something about this, because I, I'm sure that there are a lot of people that don't want to hear it's complicated. But a few years ago, I got to see Paul Simon in concert. All right? Paul Simon, I think, is one of the greatest you know, songwriters of all time. This was his last tour. Mm. He announced it as such. He's only going to do a charity show here and there. I loved seeing him. He did a handful of Simon and Garfunkel songs, and then he really, you know, showed his pride in his solo catalog, kind of like I wish Paul McCartney would do. But there was no mention of Art Garfunkel at all at this concert. Oh. Not only did he never mention his name, but there was a, you know, a slideshow in the background and lots of photos <laughs> throughout his career. Not one had Art Garfunkel in. <laughs> none. None. <laughs> Now, these are two guys that have gone on and off and on and off and on and off. They're getting along, then they break up, then they get along, then they break up. They'll do a tour, they'll do a concert in Central Park, and then they'll, they'll break up my yeah. little town. <laughs> you know, that's just two people. Imagine what it was like in the Beatles when you've got four people, so many problems happening at the end. You know, it's, it's hard for one brain to absorb it all. But unless you're in that position where you're living it, it's really hard to fully understand what they went through. And so, you know, it's great to learn more and more and more. You know, we get more pieces of the puzzle with a lot of the great books that we've had in recent years. But we'll never know everything. So I try not to be too judgmental yeah. when it comes to these things. And now, Ken, now that we've gotten everything off our chest that could be remotely perceived as negative Ooh, such a horrible word on a Paul McCartney podcast I know let's talk about some things that really turn us on as it were what are the things about Paul McCartney that draw us in made us fans in the first place things that keep us as fans so give me your first one Ken what 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 do you love about Paul McCartney well the first one is the most obvious and that is his overall talent <laughs> and when I, when I talk mm. about that, I'm not just saying songwriter. I'm thinking also musician, singer, producer. I mean, when you think about it, I don't know of anybody else on this planet that has written songs in more musical styles than Paul mm -hmm. and has done them well. You know, on the one hand, you know, he's very much a dilettante when it comes to doing something like, say, country music. Mm -hmm. You can spotlight certain songs like, Sally G or Country Dreamer or something like that, but he'll never do a full country album. Yeah, I wish he would. <laughs> but you know, if you if you scan his entire catalog, you can spotlight certain songs that fit different genres. Mm. And musically, he's all over the place. And just like the Beatles as a group were so diverse, and that along with Top Forty Radio really influenced my musical tastes because they're all over the place. And Paul McCartney and the Beatles are one of the biggest reasons. You know, when you think about it, he's done ballads, he's done rock, he's done classical music, he's done ambient music like the Fireman. You know, he's disco, done disco, reggae, like jazz, Kanye West, Tin Pan yeah. Alley. He's done it all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's really remarkable. But more importantly, 
he's done them all well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this scans his entire career, Beatles and solo. And then as a musician, he's one of the greatest bass players of all time. Every other instrument that he plays, he plays well. And I'm not going to, you know, build him up to the point where I'll say he's the greatest piano player, but he's very good on the piano. You know, everything he plays, guitar, electric guitar, acoustic guitar, he plays some mandolin like on Dance Tonight, he plays the ukulele, he plays the drums. I love his drumming. His drumming, for the most part, is very simple and basic, but it's exactly what his songs need. And um, he has a good feel for that. Um, all the Beatles really became intuitive musicians. You know, they knew exactly what the songs required. And, you know, sometimes uh, I love to listen to some of Paul's solo music because of the drumming. <laughs> sometimes I love to listen to Helen Wheels because I, I love the drumming on a song like that mm. or Mama Miss America, you know, that kind of thing. The stuff on, the, on McCartney and McCartney 2 and No Doubt McCartney 3. You know, it's the whole package of who Paul is. And as a singer, um, you know, think about all the different voices he's been. Mm. You can uh, think about the low range of a Lady Madonna or the acoustic stuff that he's done through the years where he's got that, you know, it's, it's not a, um, it's an easygoing voice like a Mother Nature's Son or the acoustic stuff he's done in his solo career from the first McCartney album, like a junk or a heart of the country and that kind of stuff. He's done falsetto like on girlfriend and so bad. Mm. He's done screaming vocals like Oh darling or Monkberry moon delight, you know, uh, just a great powerful overall rock voice on songs like band on the run. You know, there's so many different voices that he's had through the years. Uh, we all stand together. Think about his voice there. You know, it's it's so perfect for the kind of song that he's writing. In this case, an animated song. You know, but it, for what he's trying to do, you couldn't ask for anything better. The fact that he can just be so versatile at everything that he does. That's why I say the full package of him as a talent. It's it's interesting way. She, you mentioned versatility because I, I am sure there have been countless times in countless recording studios where an artist thought of something, but they physically weren't able to do it. Whereas Paul, he thinks, oh, I need a bit of recorder in this song. Oh, good thing I've already had recorder lessons then. Like he, <laughs> he's, he's always prepared. He's never caught off guard. He's, 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 he's ready at the drop of a hat to add any layer of musicality to any song. Like, I've always enjoyed doing this podcast, smashing the perception that he's this safe, middle-of-the-road Beatle. And, mm. you know, yeah, sometimes he does try and chase the number one spot, but I think that's actually the minority of his musical projects. Like, every once in a while, he needs a number one to kind of boost his ego to then allow him to do things like the Liverpool Sound Collage and Twin Freaks and the Fireman, because that's, yeah. that's the stuff we're really interested in. I think you have to be quite cynical to assume that Paul is just this pop act and, you know, just go listen to silly love songs to, like, dissuade all of those rumours. But he is so more weird, esoteric, and deeply personable than any of the literature ever points out. You know, like, oh, Paul's so obscure and he never sings about the things he really cares about. Well, lyrically, maybe not, but it comes out in the music 
hundred percent mm-hmm. in the composition, in the production. That's that's his strength. And when you were listing his individual skills earlier, it doesn't even stop there. You know, you've got fiction writer, businessman, uh, philanthropist, a man who works in charity, someone who is a you know a, a rallying symbol for certain movements as well. Like, sure, there is very little he doesn't do. In all fairness. And it is quite shocking to see how consistent he is over all of these things. I'm sure there are many other alternative universes where the Beatles broke up and then Paul really didn't do much after. And I guess a lot of people think we live in that universe where Paul didn't do a lot after the Beatles. But no, we we do live in a reality where he's pretty much been smashing it since 1970. And it is a bit of a, a trope that Beatles fans and McCartney fans say that he never gets his due credit despite being mm. the, the most successful recording artist of all time. But I don't think he's even received a tenth of the credit he deserves after 1970, do you? No, I agree with you. I think everything you said was very astute. And, you know, I, I also believe, like you said, he's he's one of the most misunderstood artists there's ever been on the planet. Because a lot of people think that he is, you know, the pop meister, the guy who likes to write number one hits. And there is that part of him, too. But... You know, and even Paul said there are times when he has to make an album that he thinks this is what the public expects of him, more typical of a McCartney album. And then at the same time, he does need his Fireman albums. He does need the McCartney, McCartney 2 and McCartney 3 albums where you hear this other side of him or the Liverpool Sound Collage, all its experimentation, Twin Freaks. There's all that stuff that the average person may not know at all. Mm-hmm. But they do know Silly Love songs, and they do know Ben on the Run, and they do know, you know, Coming Up and the pop stuff, and they think that that's all that he's done. But you really have to explore and go through all of his albums and all of his B-sides and, you know, everything, all the bonus tracks on his CDs, which a lot of people have commented are stronger than what he puts on his mm-hmm. CDs or albums. You know, once you study all of that, you'll be amazed at the range of what this man has done. It's just uh, remarkable. And I, I never stop being fascinated by it all. He's always creative. And even now, pushing 80, he still is. And he never stops. <laughs> never stop stopping. No. <laughs> That's a good title. It is. It certainly <laughs> is. Um, just, just to kind of further on that point, I, I've also been in awe, well, not in awe, but I've been very impressed as to... Okay, we know Paul is a man who does read the papers and reads reviews. This is this is confirmed fact, and he probably takes it on a little too much on board. You know, he probably takes his criticism a little too harshly, and that's why he rarely ever does the same thing twice, for better or worse. But rather uncompromisingly, Paul has always been mostly upbeat and extolling the virtues of love and. You would have thought maybe even by 1976, people would have, you know, ground him down and made him stop singing these classic Paul McCartney compositions. But he hasn't. And he is still writing silly love songs that are still making me feel all gooey and fluttery on the inside. And I'm so glad he's never taken that on board ever. You're bringing up great points here. I could easily make those, you know, my positive comments, what you're saying right now. But it is true. He's just, um, yes, he is affected by criticism. Sometimes I think that 
that bothers me a little too much. Mm-hmm. Like I think, you know, he'll never talk about Press to Play as an album unless you bring it up to him because <laughs> it didn't do that well. Or he'll make a comment like, and you know he's talking about Back to the Egg when he says <laughs> certain albums. Or Wild Life, you know, yeah, yeah. He'll say certain albums that we didn't think did all that well actually went to number eight, so that's not so bad. Yeah, that's where Back to the Egg peaked. So, you know, you know he's talking about that album there, but – you know, he's he dismisses albums that the critics seem to have roasted or not give favorable reviews to. And then at the same time, he also notices how an album like Ram, which now is so more appreciated. Now he's saying, you know, it wasn't that bad an album it was pretty good. <laughs> he tends to go with, you know, public opinion a lot and what critics have to say. And I think he is very affected by it. But, you know, uh, on the the. The great thing you could say about him is that despite being affected, he still forges on ahead, keeps doing what he wants to do. What else do you love about Paul McCartney, Ken? Give me your number two. Number two is something that we just kind of uh, briefly mentioned, and that is his work ethic. Mm. The fact that he never stops working. He's always got irons in the fire. And even even though you're hearing about whatever his next plan is, there's always something else that he's been working on that you've heard about. And with McCartney 3 about to come out, there's all this talk. You know, Some people have, have commented, wouldn't this be a great coda to his career? You know, He started with McCartney. He ends with McCartney Wouldn't it be 3? great if he fucking died now? Wouldn't it be a good time? God, that's so negative, isn't it? Oh, my God. When, when you already know that the guy wrote the music for It's a Wonderful Life, which is mm-hmm. going to come out once this pandemic is over, mm-hmm. although they probably won't be his recordings, but at least it'll be a soundtrack. You know that he's worked on the music for High in the Clouds, the mm-hmm. animated film, which is still years away from what I understand, but you've got music from there. As long as the man is breathing and is healthy, he's going to be writing music and recording music until he dies. You know, and... There's always something to excite him. He likes challenges, just like the Liverpool Oratorio was a big challenge for him to write a full-blown classical piece as opposed to one song like an Eleanor Rigby or a Yesterday. Um, He loves doing that kind of stuff. And in this case, it's a wonderful life to write a musical. The fact that that was a big challenge for him, he embraced that. And even within classical music, there are challenges there. You know, Ocean's Kingdom, to write a song for uh, a piece for a ballet could be looked upon as being different than for an oratorio, you know, that kind of thing. He's always working on something. There's always things that he's, that he's doing that in some cases we don't know about. There's so much from his back catalog that we've never heard before. There's probably a lot of unreleased songs and he, he enjoys it. He genuinely enjoys it. You know, you're very lucky if you really know yourself that well to the point where he knows that he loves He loves writing music. He likes recording music. It's never stopped. It's still exciting for him. He's always looking for, you know, a song that people can point to as being one of his best. He said, you never know if something I write now could be one of my best songs. And that excites him. He doesn't know how the world's going to react to the new stuff that he does. But, you know, the thrill of creating constantly whether it's you know, a great thought in a song or a great melody or whatever, all that excites him. And it hasn't 
it hasn't stopped exciting him, despite the fact that he's been doing this for so long. Who would blame him if he wanted to stop? He's done enough, you know, but he still keeps doing it. And I think that if he lives to be 100, he'll be doing it until then. So that's, that's another thing that I admire so greatly about him. Ken, as someone who is constantly very self-conscious about their own work ethic, am I doing enough for this podcast? Am I put, you know, doing enough research? Am I reading enough books? Even if I'm acting at 100% capacity of what I could give to this podcast, it would be nothing compared to the work ethic of Paul McCartney. We haven't even touched on touring either. Like the fact that if he isn't in the studio writing something or in his back room writing something or playing something for someone else at a party, he's probably playing for 200,000 people in some giant stadium somewhere. Uh-huh. He, he literally doesn't stop. He's like a he's like a shark. Like if he physically stops, you know, he'll just wither away and mm. i think one i think one of the main points and this is something i've always admired in my in my own grand grandparents uh, my grandparents that maintained their mental faculties further into their later life they didn't stop they were the, the same people just in older bodies and paul like, is still exemplifying that fully he is still as sharp as a razor he's fit as a butcher's dog I couldn't be on stage for three hours doing what he's doing, and I'm not even 30 yet, Ken. And he doesn't mm-hmm. drink water. He doesn't drink water, Ken, you know? <laughs> like, how can I not be in awe of this man? Like, yeah, I may have complained earlier that he might tell the same story over and over again in interviews, but he's done a lot of fucking interviews. <laughs> you yeah. Know? He's always giving us more, and if there's crossover, if there's a bit of a... A Venn diagram of overlap, so be it, you know. If COVID-19 were here now, Ken, he'd be touring as we speak. If you follow most artists who have had long careers, most of them tell the same stories. (laughs) Mm -hmm. If you really want to analyze, you know, um, it's it's inevitable that you're going to repeat the same story. You may not remember how often you've told the same story. Um, I've interviewed people. And certain people that I've interviewed more than once will repeat the same thing. You know, mm. it's, um, it's, it's part of the beast, you know. <laughs> I'm sure when, when uh, you become extremely famous with all your podcast shows and people ask you about your work, you're going to be saying some of the same stories to them. No, because so, I'm better. I'm better, Ken. I would never fall for such foolery. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah so once so ken came to me in a dream and he said let it be sam he said let it be you know uh, oh that's new to me <laughs> uh, but even just the way he's daring you know he continued after the breakup of the biggest band in existence he continued to go solo after wings has ended you know this is a man who is not really phased by the idea of opposition you know band on the run Two of his band members leave. All right, I'll write the best, most successful album the band's ever done. Then um, there's oh. very little that can stop him. He he is both a rock and a hard place. Um, <laughs> and then he, very well put. Very yeah. well put. <laughs> and he, it, you know, it's and it's not just like oh, okay, he writes lots of albums and he does a lot of music, but he's like lazy with his family or he's lazy with his public persona or he doesn't do this. He's, I think the uh, the Asher family and their influence and the idea that everyone had a schedule that they kept to every day really rubbed off 
on the young McCartney, who had kind of been floating around London as this kind of bachelor for a few years. And mm. the moment he was like, oh, hang on, you can make every day useful. You can make every single day productive and have fun at the same time. And once that light bulb turned red in his brain, that was it, really. Uh, you know, how do you think that came from the Asher family? From what I've read currently, yeah, I think I, th- I think I think I do. Um, he always had a, a, a drive that John never had. I think John wanted to like the idea of being in a band more than the actual uh, processes of being in a band. Paul has always definitely been the natural showman, but the the idea that off stage he's got the same work ethic as say on stage is something he probably definitely picked up, kind of sixty three, sixty four. Hmm. Well, he always was a PR man from the very beginning. So, you know, he took a, a look at the whole picture of, you know, the success of the Beatles and what that required. And it was not just a matter of putting out great music, mm-hmm. you know, giving interviews and knowing the right things to say and not ruffling any feathers and, and just forging ahead. You know, he, he was great at doing that. And he was probably, not probably, he was the most ambitious. But they all had ambition in the very beginning. So let's not kid ourselves. Yeah, I think Paul was the only person in the band who who really had that kind of the world is not enough kind of vibe. You know, I think John and George certainly had a cynicism of uh, how 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 much better can the Beatles be? How much more successful can we be? What is the point? Whereas I think it's not an ignorance or a blind foolishness, but I think Paul just has an optimism of like, if we put the work in, why can't the Beatles write? an album better than Pepper and Abbey Road. Why not? Let's go for it. But like I said, he loves the challenge of it all. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you top Rubber Soul? You do Revolver. How do you top Revolver? You do Sgt. Pepper. You know, it was always this constant climb with the Beatles. And I think he fed off of that. My gosh. You know? Ken, whenever I read stuff about how, like, Paul was pushing the Beatles, I'm like, thank God he was! We wouldn't, we wouldn't have got anything otherwise. You know, come on, produce. <laughs> that might be you the best quote ever. Like yeah. <laughs> come on, produce. That is, yeah. that, that is the, though, isn't it? Come on. Magical Mystery Tour, White Album, Pepper. The, these are poor albums. Let's, let, let's not no, mince no, words here. No, 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 no. Don't ever say that. The, you know, that he was, you know, a big force. Every every single album, you, you got to take differently. I mean, um, the White Album has more Lennon songs than McCartney songs. Does it have better ones though? Again, that's the real. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And quite honestly, you know, and I want to bring this bring this up on things we said today is I don't think John gets enough credit for the Sgt. Pepper album if you break it down song by song. <laughs> I'm going to blow raspberries at that one, Ken, I'm afraid. Oh, come oh. on. Hey, 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 hey. Good Morning, Good Morning's easily the worst song on that album by a country mile. They're all great. They are all great. He wrote Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. He wrote Good Morning, Good Morning. He wrote, depending upon which version of the story you want to believe, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, he wrote, I would say, most of it. Paul said he helped out a bit on pulling the words off the poster. And John also wrote a substantial amount in A Day in the Life. But he also helped out on, with a little help from my friends, on getting better. I don't know if you heard this story before, but John said, 
couldn't get much worse. He came up with that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You I don't know. know if Paul's ever talked about this before. But um, also there's the line in Getting Better, I used to be cool to my woman, you know, that part yeah. that came from John. So all these little things, you add it all together, and it's not like it's, you know, 80% Paul, 20% John. You know, you, and of course, within you, without you was George. But, you know, John had a lot more input overall. I think that John was affected by the fact that the whole concept of Sgt. Pepper was Paul's idea, and Paul gets all the credit for Sgt. Pepper, so he dismissed the album. And he would say, what does anyone remember about Sgt. Pepper? A day in the life, that's all I remember. But if you really pick apart each song, John did a lot more than uh, we give him credit for. It should be a little bit more in Paul's favor, but not overwhelmingly Paul. Do you reckon a lot of this this controversy stems from the fact that for the first, say, 40% of the band's existence, John was very comfortable in the undisputed leader creator role you know he yes he was the beatles and i totally empathize with him as a human being as to a, uh, the threat of a friend within within your own group um mm-hmm. it's it's totally not unimaginable though i guess paul was a bit you know we've just mentioned that paul was a media man i reckon he was a better media man early on and a lot of the kind of post beatles stuff or like kind of 68 onwards that's John coming into his own as a media personality, as an image, as a quote-unquote brand. And that's him kind of saying, no, no, I'm done with this McCartney narrative now. We're going we're gonna to get things back on track. Things didn't get back on track. And by that point, the Beatles ended. You know, I think, I think, I think it was a bit too late for them to work out an equilibrium that way. But as, mm-hmm. as we mentioned earlier, they probably didn't even have the, the tools to kind of work out an amicable relationship in that way, which which is a real shame. I'm not going to keep you here forever, Ken. What's the? Um... <laughs> by the way, by the way, she's leaving home. Yes, John wrote the counter melody. Began so you either melody. just say it's all Paul, or you recognize John's contribution there. So, oh, Ken, no, I know Ken, what you're Ken, saying. I'm the kind of guy who says thirty percent of Eleanor Rigby should be given to George Harrison as well. I'm I'm not. The, I wish I knew exactly what George, what George Harrison wrote. I know he said that he contributed to it, and John said he contributed to it, but I don't know what they contributed. I know George has said in interviews, nobody gives me credit for helping out Eleanor Rigby, you know, but, and John has said in interviews that he wrote part of Eleanor Rigby. So that's one of the few songs, that and in my life especially, where between John and Paul, they'll say something different. The problem with those two songs, though, is that there's a lot of the other person in that song quite clearly. Like, there's definitely smatterings of John all over Eleanor Rigby, but... I don't hear it. <laughs> Where I do you hear it? I do. I think just the kind of... Just the tone, the general mood. I think it's... Um, unless it's really McCartney going outside of his comfort zone, then, yeah. But I, I, there are elements of it, just the kind of... the darkness and the gritty realism of it it it's either paul's real first foray into that or it's him bouncing ideas off john just from what i've read well, i feel like it's a much more of a collaborative effort than has ever been really uh, defined but you know uh, paul was really great at writing uh, songs about people who are sad characters you know like eleanor rigby or for no one i mean and she's leaving home you know, he was very adept about that kind of stuff. 
So he's drawn to those kind of things. So, you know, you can't say. I was going to say, going back to She's Leaving Home, it's weird that no one ever, like, people are always like, oh, John always wrote stuff from books and from TV and from newspapers. Well, She's Leaving Home is primarily a Paul composition. He got that out of a newspaper during the Pepper period as well. So That's true. Is he as uninterested and uninspired as John? Probably not, you know. Um, again, much deeper and greyer than we could possibly imagine. Hmm. Ken, third, finally, last but not least, what's fucking awesome about Paul McCartney? This, this will probably surprise you because there's so many other things I admire about him. But over the years, I'm, I've really come to think the world of him because he is such a devoted family man. Oh, I that's mean, adorable. Please, please, Ken, <laughs> I'm going to shut up for the next 10 minutes. Just talk to me about this, please. No, the fact that, um, you know, he's always so supportive of every member of his family. You always see him, and when Linda was alive, attending Stella's fashion shows or whatever Mary was doing with her photography. Uh, even James, you know, he was at one of James's concert. And so supportive of Linda when she was alive with all the things that she was doing. Uh, with her vegetarian meals and her photography. And there would be times when Linda would be with Paul while Linda was giving an interview for the media and Paul would back away mm-hmm. and let Linda get the spotlight because he, he knew, obviously, if the two of them were together on screen, all the questions, or most of them, would be directed at him. He was so supportive of his family in that way. And even though the marriage with Heather Mills didn't work out, look at how he supported her cause. You know, and just the fact that family's always been so important to him, even during the early days of Wings, if he could take his kids on the road with them, he did. He did during Wings Over America. He's made his family so well grounded. He brought he made sure that they went to ordinary schools, you know, instead of the ones for very wealthy people, which he obviously could have afford afforded. He wanted his kids to be regular folk. You know, who could just blend in with people on the street, you know, and I just admire that about him. Some people turn that around and they'll say, well, that's because he's cheap. Well, I don't look at it that way. I want he wanted his kids to be ordinary people just like him. And they all have a work ethic, too. I mean, they could all just live off of Paul's money if they wanted to look at all that Stella's done in the world of fashion for that matter. You know, I mean, James doesn't have to make music. He is doing it, playing small clubs. Yeah. That kind of thing. Um, I admire the hell uh, out of Paul for that reason. Stella's also successful in an area of business where Paul's swing and sway really wouldn't have that, like, that much pull. That's true, but it's still to have the McCartney name, people will pay attention to you. Yeah, but like, but, like, like I said, he steps back. He knows that he can draw in journalists and newspapers mm-hmm. to these events. He can go, oh, you know, I'm going to be here. Oh, the old switcheroo, though. Here's Linda for two hours. Bye, bye, right. bye, bye, everyone. That's perfect. That's, you know, such a an indicator that he knows how this game is played and he's willing to manipulate areas that kind of so assail his life in a negative way and turn it into a positive for the people he loves. Right. Right. And, and one more thing I want to add about this, this doesn't just apply to Paul, but to all the Beatles, you know how it's said that you can tell a lot about a person from their parents. 
you look at all the Beatles kids, you never hear about any scandals <laughs> yeah. at all. And yeah. it's a miracle. <laughs> it, they have a lot of kids and you never hear anything at all. And I'm not saying that they're all perfect and they're all angels, but they all turn out to be really fine, decent human beings. And, you know, just based on the interviews that I've seen from all of them, they're all really nice kids. Kids, they're in their 40s. And, and uh, hey, Julian is, what, uh, 57 now. But uh, He's 57? You know, yes. Fucking hell. Oh, my <laughs> God. That's... <laughs> So you got to give a lot of credit to the Beatles and to their wives. You know, I, I give a lot of credit. You know, I know that Linda was extremely close with the kids. So give her a ton of credit. Give Yoko a lot of credit for the way Sean has turned out. Give Cynthia credit for the way Julian's turned out. Olivia and George for Danny and Ringo and uh, Maureen and Barbara, you know, for all the for their kids, too. The mere fact that you never hear anything, they never start any trouble. They could easily do it. They're major names because of their last names and because mm -hmm. of who their fathers are. You never hear a word about it. And yet there's plenty of kids of famous people that are always causing trouble. <laughs> you know, it never happens in the Beatle family. No. So not, not even I, the grandkids either. Like even, nope. even the grandkids have mostly got their noses clean. Yeah. And we all love them because they all look... Like, the Beatles' genetics on the male side of the chromosomes, my God, they were all strong, weren't they? Like, uh -huh. they all, all, all the sons, it's a meme, I know, but Danny Harrison, fuck me, Ken. Like, what? That's George Harrison again? He got reincarnated <laughs> before he died? That's how deep... In faith, he was like, good God. Mm. People always say, you know, you live forever through your kids. And the way that they've all been looking after their parents' legacies. Yeah, they have become immortal through their children. It's been so lovely. It has. They really have respected, you know, their father's legacies. And that's that's great. And it's not that easy, especially when the sons of the Beatles have had music careers and they're constantly compared to their father's. And it's ridiculous. And there are a lot of fans out there that won't really give the sons the time of day or really listen to how talented they are because everything comes down to, well, he's not better than John or Paul or George or Ringo. You know? And it's, just, it's ridiculous. Everybody is special and has their own talents in their own way. You're going to hear some influences from their fathers and their music. It's inevitable. It's in their DNA. But you shouldn't go to a Julian album and think that it's going to be the same thing as a John Lennon album. It'll be great in its own way. You know, I'm so impressed with the Beatles kids. Would any of the original four Beatles been able to manage their own respective father's empires had they had them? Would George Harrison have been able to make Beatles rock band with a conversation with Giles Martin? You know, it takes an awful lot of talent to be the sons of people who are going to be more influential and famous than you'll ever be. It's it it's truly honourable, the path they've taken. They could have come out and been like, oh, you know, obviously, you know, Sean and Julian have had issues with their own dad and stuff in, in the media and stuff. But once they get it all out their system, they're, they're more or less uh, loyal, devout keepers of the flame. I know mm -hmm. for a fact that 
even if they slagged off all of their dads into the dirt, they would be financially secure for the rest of their lives. So, mm. it, so it's not like ah, oh, the, they've got to toe the line. Else, Olivia won't give Danny the you know the inheritance. That's not what's going on here at all. Mm. They genuinely respect what their dads did. Like they are as honourable as we as as we as fans would want them to be. You know. Hmm. Well said. You know. I can't say enough about the way the kids turned out, you know. And, and just recently there was that news item about Sean that Yoko was handing over the reins. Mm-hmm. You know, even though while she's still alive, she still will oversee everything. But you know things are going to be in good hands with Sean. You just know it because he's so proud of who his father was and will always be. And he'll want to do right. You know, and I have a feeling the same thing will happen someday with Danny, with George. You know, far into the future, because Olivia's still young. And the same thing with the other Beatles kids. So, you know, they really raise great kids <laughs> to be proud of. So that's, um, and Paul is no exception. They're, they're all wonderful. Just one thing I wanted to add, um, just a, a, a third one, because um, shockingly, your third like is not one that uh, was the same as mine. We actually had something different here. Um, mm. It does spin off what we spoke about earlier, though. My third thing that, that just impresses me about Paul, something I'm always drawn to him, something I really admire, is his ability to remain, in parentheses, more or less, fresh and current. You can definitely view this in a, in a negative way. You know, he's just chasing the number one. He's a sellout. He's this. He's that. But he's just so ubiquitous in the public eye. It's almost supernatural. He never does the same thing twice. He completely re, re, like revamps his image in, in an almost Madonna-esque way every like five, ten years. You know, we had Richard Ogden in the 80s, and then we've had Capital bring you up in the last two years to make the digital Paul McCartney. He's everywhere again now. You always see his face on magazine covers, James mm. Corden, Jimmy Fallon, this and that. He's everywhere again and he does it all without being horrendously cringy, like so many other kind of legacy artists do. You know, if you went on Wired and you saw, oh, Bob Dylan reads out his most Googled search terms, like it would not be a good video at all. It would be a, it would be, it'd be a shit show. It really would. And yet McCartney is somehow able, possibly with the help of, you know, really cool hip and modern family members who are kind of not keeping him up to date, but... You know, they keep him youthful, as it were. And mm. the way he's able to just go, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go from analogue to digital. I'm going to go from this genre to the, to that genre. I'm going to work with Kanye West and Rihanna and just totally uh, dominate the uh, streaming charts in that way. I just find it so admirable, the way he's just not afraid to at least try and stay current. You know, he's not like Billy Joel. Oh, there's no point in releasing a new album because no one's going to listen to it and it's not going to be number one. He doesn't bother with all of that. He still tries to make it number one, which in itself is admirable. He's not doing the whole, oh, I'm going to release an album like like Leonard Cohen, but I don't care if it only gets to number 88. He's both trying to get to number one, trying to make good music and do something different, as you say, coming up to the age of 80. How is that not admirable? I don't know how you well, can see it any other way. 
There's there's different ways of looking at that. I mean, there are there are people who think that Paul tries to be too trendy. He's always if you follow this, and this this is nothing new. You go back to um, well, even back to the egg, <laughs> Chris Thomas. He works with Chris Thomas there, even though he has the connection during the Beatle years. Chris Thomas was pretty hot at mm-hmm. the time as a producer. He worked with you know Hugh Padgham with Press to Play, all the different producers on Flowers in the Dirt and Julian Mendelssohn with Off the Ground and, you know, Nigel Godrich, always the hot producer of the moment, Greg Kirsten, mm-hmm. you know, on an Egypt station. People like that, there are people who accuse Paul of trying to, trying too hard to always be relevant and always stay fresh and everything instead of just being more authentic to what to what his music was. But I like an artist who constantly changes and evolves and does something a little bit different every single time. You know, that's how I feel about it. I don't see any shame in wanting to sound fresh. And if you happen to like Greg Kirsten's work or Hugh Padgham or whoever it is, why not work with that person? I don't see any harm in that. But there are people out there who feel that he tries too hard, that matters more to him than the music, you know, to have a number one or a top 10 album. And, you know, it's easy. I I can certainly sympathize with fans who feel that once you've had enough success, you know, it doesn't make you any greater if you have more. Mm. I remember there was a time when George Harrison said something to Ringo where Ringo was concerned that his latest album wasn't doing all that well. And George said, what are you worried about? You already made it. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you you already had all the success in the Beatles. You had a decent number of hits in the 70s. You had seven top tens in the United States and two number ones. You've already proven yourself. It's not like if you have another hit or another number one or another top ten album or a, a number one album, you're that much greater than you already are. And I understand that point of view as well. You know, if Paul McCartney has another number one album to you, Sam... In the United States, does that make him a greater artist than he already is? You know, it's kind of hard to top what you've done already. So I understand that point of view. Do you you think more highly of Paul if he has another number one? I admire Paul, Ken, because, uh, okay, I admire Paul in the way that I admire Evil Knievel. I don't care if Evil Knievel lands the motorcycle on the other end of the canyon. I admire him for the attempt. I admire him for going for it. And Mm. you know what? Maybe Egypt Station hasn't held up as well as maybe I thought it would have in 2018. Maybe I prefer maybe just a single disc's worth of tracks from that album. But, my God, do I enjoy that one disc worth of songs off Egypt Station? My God, do I enjoy new... Um, mm. I've loved his stuff with Kanye West and the Foo Fighters recently. Uh, I'm so glad he's still trying to make good music. Because even yeah. if he's just 50% successful... That's still him making a greater percentage of songs that I like than most current artists can make anyway. Um, okay. You know, Lady Gaga's new album came out. I liked one song off it, Ken. And yes, hmm. Paul in his 80s, I know that I'm going to at least add six songs off McCartney 3 to my forever Paul McCartney playlist. These are hmm. just facts. <laughs> Even though I'm horrendously biased. Um, mm mm-hmm. We have to admit that going into conversations like this, I am horrendously biased, but I'd rather Paul still keep giving it a go than 
be a house husband in 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 New York for ten years and then release Dolphin oh. C. Oh, oh, oh! Don't not yet. <laughs> That's cruel. <laughs> oh, I wasn't I playing. Shot- I wasn't playing guitar for ten years, but then I came out and suddenly I was really good at guitar. Oh no, you were playing guitar for those ten years. You just uh, weren't I, recording I know. it. I know that's one quote from John that has always bothered me because she know it was BS, <laughs> you know, but most, most of what John said to the public was, was how BS. he felt at the moment. Uh, it was not, it was not, he was being truthful. He was I'm honest. Just tro- I'm just, just trolling you there, Ken, I'm just yeah. trolling you. But that one quote from John is one that I will always point to, especially since we know so many of the recordings that he worked on during those last five years on acoustic guitar or piano. He was writing. Mm-hmm. He was trying to write. And I don't believe, uh, you know, as, as some people have written, that he lost his muse. I just think that um, his priorities were different the last five years of his life. And with that, Ken, I am I am shocked that in less than two hours we have managed to talk about every the top three things we'd love and might seek improvement of with Paul McCartney. We've not even scratched the surface, I doubt, really. All humans, whether famous or not, are far too complicated to reduce down to a single two-hour podcast. But I think just from the perspective of two fans, from two different perspectives, talking about what makes the man that you know we spend so much time talking about, uh, you know, what draws us to him, what pushes us away from him at times, it's been an interesting experiment nonetheless, wouldn't you say? Yeah, you bring out all this stuff out of me. This is like a therapy session when I'm with you. This isn't a podcast. This is a therapy session. You're my psychologist. So, so Ken, <laughs> um, I know that we've done a lot of therapy already, but the next stage of the therapy is me filming it. Uh-oh. <laughs> that might be dangerous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, John John didn't want to be filmed in primal screen, but that's why he never got through the therapy. So I, I guess you're just going to have to put up, I'm afraid, Ken. All right. Whatever you say, Sam. (laughs) How do you pod at night? (laughs) Speaking of podding at night, it is actually pitch black for me right now. So let's wrap this up, Ken. What's going on with with you in the podcasting world? Have we got more talk, more talk and things we said today and every little thing coming out? Yes, we do. Talk more talk is every other week. We're going to be doing a show on, uh, well, a tribute show to John is coming up. We're going to do a show on McCartney 3. Now that's been postponed, but it's going to be (laughs) a few weeks later. And we haven't planned anything yet for January. A lot depends upon whether or not box sets come out for Plastic Ono Band or or All Things Must Pass. You know, we know Plastic Ono Band is, is a lock. That's going to happen. We don't know for sure about All Things Must Pass. But um, I know that in the case of All Things Must Pass, on Things We Said Today, the next show we're going to do is for the 50th anniversary of that. Um, We're going to have, oh, on on Talk More Talk, the the Lennon tribute show is going to be with Al Sussman, too. Oh, awesome. Uh, Yeah. And uh, there's always the Every Little Thing shows. There's always new ones that, that come out like every two weeks or, or so. Oh, if Ken, you want sorry, it, sorry to interrupt. Has COVID affected every little thing then? What's happening with that? Are you having to use old shows? Are they re- doing reruns? Are they still accepting new content from you during this time? Well, 
Um, that's kind of a long answer. The syndicated show, I'll make it th- this as simple as possible. The syndicated show doesn't operate like most syndicated radio shows of the past. There's right now 147 shows in the can of every little thing. None of them are dated in any way. That's how the shows are written. Any news station that takes the show can run any of those shows. It's not like they all run the same show every single week. So um, a certain number of them air the newest ones as they're finished. Um, COVID has not affected that at all. But what COVID has done is make it really tough for me to get news stations because program directors are not there physically at the radio stations for the most part. Although they could always look at their emails from home. But a lot of them don't want to make any changes Mm. in their programming. So it's very difficult for me to get news stations at the moment. So that's how COVID has affected that. I did do a live version of Every Little Thing, which is not just a repeat of what I would do on the the syndicated show. And that hasn't happened since last March. Because the radio station that I do that out of, which is WNHU in uh, West Haven, Connecticut, um, that was every single week. Uh, Their campus closed in March and uh, no one's allowed at the radio station except like one person at a time. And even even then, they don't want the DJs there. Um, and that's that's very tough. And even if I was to do a show from home, which is very possible, I could uh, you know do a show live. Mm-hmm. There are ways of doing that and sending the signal to the station. You've got to have a person physically at the radio station to make sure that it's running smoothly. If anything goes wrong and there's dead air for two hours, you know, you've got to have somebody there to correct that. So um, they don't always have somebody there mm-hmm. at the radio station. So it affects the live broadcast and the syndicated show and the fact that it's difficult to get new stations right now. So, But I'm still producing constantly and hoping that when things clear up and, uh, you know, what, what a horror this whole thing has been worldwide – and, uh, you know, my heart goes out to everyone that's been affected by this. I don't know many people that haven't. But when things do clear up, hopefully things will pick up with the show and I'll get more stations. Uh, I certainly hope to. And um, also for the simple fact that, uh, you know, in this podcast world that we're living in, it's very difficult to get new young fans to listen to radio the old-fashioned way, you know, listening mm. to you know, a show where you're playing music, you're talking about the music, you're throwing on an interview, you're doing thematic sets, which I always do. Um, and those that carry the syndicated show, there's trivia that's that's thrown in as well. It's a fun show. And uh, you hear hits, you hear deep cuts, and, and uh, it's a mixture of everything. Anything the Beatles ever touch can be heard in that show. And I want people to hear that instead of a podcast show, which I do love doing. Uh, which is strictly talk. I mean, they all serve a purpose, and there's a lot of really good Beatle podcast shows out there now. Mm. <laughs> They're multiplying like like rabbits, and uh, you know, I wish I had the time to listen to all of them. But it's a great thing, and it's a healthy thing. What's going on with podcasts? But I I still want old fashioned radio shows to thrive. And I'd love young people to listen to shows like those because it's one thing to talk about the music. It's another thing to play the music and have people hear it and judge for themselves. So, uh, you know, you need shows like that 
And those of us that grew up listening to radio and it was such a big part of their lives, you know, uh, I, I sympathize with all those people where it's hard to find young audiences listening to that kind of radio again. And uh, I will do everything I can to keep that kind of radio alive. Ken, don't worry. I'm going to tell you right now. When me and something about the Beatles and Beatles Naked all get sued into oblivion and all of that stuff gets taken offline because we use horrendously uncopyrighted music for more than a minute, I'm looking at you, Rodriguez. You you got me into doing that. I'll blame, I'll, I'll blame you. 17 minutes of music clips before the episode even fucking starts. Don't even get me started again. <laughs> we'll be gone we'll be gone our twitter accounts will be banned we'll be taken off air but you'll be there with that radio dial thing you know whilst i'm in the you know whilst germans are bombing me from above during the blitz joining you now is every little thing you'll still be there whilst i'll be forgotten so well i don't wish i don't wish that on all the podcast shows and Robert Rodriguez does a great job. Great job. So, oh no, no, nothing against him as as a broadcaster, but I do blame him for getting me addicted to including too many musical clips in my show. Anyway, folks, now that we've gotten all of our copyright talk out of the way, I'm just going to take ten seconds to embarrass Ken and thank him for coming on to support this poxy little podcast. Uh, you know, when I started this fucking four years ago now. I was already listening to Ken's work and in awe of it. And Ken, to have you on now on my little show, just to have a little chat like this, very informally, it touches my heart to you know to no end. So thank you for coming on, and I can't wait to have you on again. Hey, I'm always here for you, Sam. Um, you know what, Ken? I'm just going to end today's episode on one final gripe I've got with Paul McCartney. Just one last quick one, one sentence. He's yeah. a dirty veggie, and I can't stand that. Thank you for listening to Paul or Nothing, everyone. Uh, I've been Sam Wells. He's been Ken Michaels. Paul's a dirty vegetarian. Take care. Peace and love. I'll see you later. Bye-bye.
Red lights, green lights, strolling.